If you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn to Isaiah chapter 11? I heard someone say this week that the Sunday after Christmas is always like a reverse rapture, where only a faithful few remain in church on that day, which I suppose is true, but, but I'm thankful that uh, we have part of our church here, and we have many special guests with us as, today, as well today, and I'm very thankful for that. John Piper, who, who ministers in Minneapolis, I've heard him say that in the winter they will have these horrible blizzards on Sundays, and he'll get up to preach, and, and very few will have been able to make it to church that day, and he always prays that if only half the number of people are there, that the Lord will provide twice the blessing on those people, and he figures just as much good will have been done through the service. And so in a few moments, we'll just pray for twice the blessing to be done today and trust that just as much good will happen today as any other day. Isaiah chapter 11 is our text for today. This is our our last Sunday in the December sermon series that we have been doing, looking at Jesus Christ as he is presented to us through the Old Testament prophets. Our goal, of course, every Sunday is to present Jesus Christ, to study him, to lift him up and to magnify him, and what better way to do that, especially around Christmas time, than to go into the Old Testament, to go to the prophets, to go especially to Isaiah, to prophecies like this, which you will recognize some of the words in this one as being very well known, to see how they, the prophets, pointed people to Jesus Christ in their own day. How they revealed his character, how they revealed his work, how they told of the one who was to come. And so I'm going to read for us, Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, and then I'm also going to read Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 22, in which we hear from Jesus as he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Not this passage, but a similar one. And so, let me ask, if you are able, would you join me in standing this morning for the reading of God's word? This is Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I want to read also from Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. 
He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word that is given by inspiration of your spirit for the good of your church, that we might be built up in holiness, in godliness, in faithfulness, in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in gentleness, in faithfulness, in self-control. And so, Father, today we ask that, that the same spirit that inspired these words will now open the eyes of our hearts that we might truly see wonderful things in your word, that you might draw us to Jesus Christ, and that your blessings may be found throughout the world as far as the curse is found. For this is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Aubrey and I did something new this Christmas that we have never done before in our married life. This was... I believe, the 12th Christmas that we have celebrated together. And we did something new, and that is we woke up on Christmas morning in our own house. Every year to this point, we've celebrated Christmas either at her parents' house or at my parents' house or some other family member's house. But this year, we were at our own house on Christmas Day, and that was special. It was fun to be there, to be in our own setting, our own context. And, and of course, we had family come to us this year, which has been even more fun. But it got me thinking about how we did Christmas at my house when I was a kid. And of course, I, I remember many of the great traditions that we had, uh, the way we did Christmas morning. Of course, when I was young, my brother and I would wake up early and excited and go and just stare at the Christmas tree and behold all of the presents until my parents woke up. And, and that time frame between us getting up and them getting up, of course, that felt like a couple eternities stacked on top of each other. But, but then we would get to the point of opening the presents. And, and I suppose my family, we were a little bit type A, and we were pretty organized about the way we did it. We didn't just tear into all the gifts. We, my dad would pass them out one by one, and each person would open their present while the rest of the family looked on. And, and my mom was always sitting diligently nearby with her notepad, recording what gift had come from which relative so we could send our thank you notes as we diligently were reminded to do over and over. And, and we'd open all those gifts, and it was, of course, great fun. You tear into each one, and, and you just have a moment to enjoy it. You look at it, and you're surprised, hopefully in a good sort of way, and, and you enjoy it, and you look at it, and, and almost immediately you kind of have to set it aside because somebody else is opening a gift, and you want to watch, and you want to participate, and see what they're getting as well, and so it, it all goes really fast, and you end up with this pile of gifts, but, but there's all that joy in being surprised in what you're opening. Well, then, of course, you know, Christmas afternoon, this was almost my favorite part of the day, because in the morning you'd opened all these gifts, but you hadn't really had time to appreciate them. So Christmas afternoon, you come back to your little pile of loot, and, and that's when you actually get to pick things up and look at them and explore them and, and begin to savor every gift and, and explore what it can do. If it's a toy, you want to figure out what, what things it can do. If it's a piece of electronics, you want to learn all the functions. If it's clothes, you want to see if it fits. And, and all these things, you just sit and you figure out, what, what can this do? 
But it's more than that. You also begin dreaming about playing with it and, and how this gift is going to make your life better. When I was in college, I, I went through this phase where I got just all sorts of camping gear as Christmas presents. And of course, at, at Colorado, at Christmas, you're not going to go camping in December or January. It's going to be a few months before you use some of that stuff. And so you sit there and you're looking at it and, and you're enjoying it, but you're also dreaming. You're saying, just wait till I can use this in all of its fullness. I have it now and I'm enjoying it, but I'm not really enjoying it until I get out and I use it the way it's meant to be used. And, and so there's almost three different types of joy that you can see on Christmas. There's the joy of the surprise when you open your presents. Then there's the joy of savoring when you kind of get to pick them up and turn them around and look at them. And there's also the joy of dreaming. When your mind starts to wonder and you think, what is it going to be like when I can use this in all of its fullness? And that's what we see in Isaiah. There's, there's all three of those kinds of joy. There's the joy of surprise, there's the joy of savoring, and there's the joy of dreaming. All about Jesus. Let's look first at the joy of surprise in, in 11 verse 1. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, to understand this, what, what Isaiah is saying here, we have to understand what he's been doing throughout chapter 10. In chapter 10, he's been developing this illustration in which he's picturing Israel, the people of God, as a great tree of the forest. And then he's been picturing Assyria, the big, bad, pagan nation that is their enemy, as an axe. Israel is a great tree of the forest, great in beauty and glory, and Assyria is an axe in the hand of the Lord. And you don't need to be a lumberjack to understand that this illustration is not going to end well for the nation of Israel. Back in chapters 8 and chapter 9, where we were last week, we saw that Israel was bemoaning the spiritual state of the nation of Israel. He bemoaned that they were ruled by King Ahaz, who was this evil king who, who sacrificed his own sons and burned them as offerings to pagan gods. Remember chapter 6, he bemoans and he mourns to the Lord. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. There's all this idolatry, there's all this evil, and so he says in chapter 9 that the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, and it's this darkness that is over the land. And, and what happens now is he's saying, up until this point, the Lord has been merciful, he's been gracious, he's been slow to anger, although there's this sin and this darkness and there's uncleanness over all the land, he's been mercifully patient, he's been slow to anger, but in chapter 10 he says, now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. The Lord is raising up Assyria and it's going to be his tool for his righteous and just and fair judgment <clears throat> against the people of Israel. He's going to bring them to judge his people and he's going to lop Israel down. It says, look at the two verses before chapter 11. In chapter 10, 33 and 34, behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And, and so now, here he is, and, and he's prophesying that there's this judgment that is coming, and history tells us, and scripture tells us as well, that within about ten years of this prophecy, it came true. Assyria came in and sacked the nation of Israel, and they've never, it was, this was the northern kingdom. And, and that was God's righteous tool of judgment on them for their sin. 
And so to hear this correctly, we have to understand how the Israelites of that day would have heard Isaiah's prophecy of the coming destruction that God is bringing on them. So you know, picture yourself, Joe Israelite, going out to get your morning bagel for breakfast, and you hear Isaiah preaching, and he's preaching this, these prophecies of the Lord's coming judgment on the people. Now, now, how do you feel when you hear that? Obviously, that's bad news. Obviously, this is your people, this is your country. That's bad news if the Lord's judgment is coming, but there's really a lot more to that to it than that isn't there. There's a whole other set of questions that this raises that are theological problems. After all, this is the nation of Israel. This is God's chosen people. This is the nation of the Lord. This is him who, through whom God is supposed to bring his promised one. God is going to spread his blessings to all people through the nation of Israel. He's going to raise up one who will rule the nations through the nation of Israel. And so to hear that God is now judging Israel, that's not just bad news personally. That's theologically problematic. What will happen to the promises? What's, what's going to become of God's faithfulness? Is he going to be true to his word that he's given? Will blessings still come to all the nations through Israel if Israel herself is judged? And now we get to chapter 11, and it's in that context with all of those problems in mind that, that Isaiah begins point two of his sermon. Point one is this judgment that's coming, and now he says, but there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So here's this great tree, and it's been felled onto the ground, and you just have this stump. And if we think even historically, 700 years go by, and this stump is just here, and it looks for all the world like it's dead. And you wonder what will become of it, and all of a sudden, you look at the shoot and there's a, or at the stump, and there's a leaf growing out of the top of it. He says there will come a shoot from the stump of Jesse. As unexpected as this is, as surprising as this is, this is what he says that that God is going to bring new life out of death. Here's the word Isaiah is given from the Lord. He says, "This the fate of God's people will not be determined by the faithfulness." of those people, but by the faithfulness of the one who is to come. The fate of God's people is not determined by the faithfulness of his people, but they must look to the one who is to come, this shoot that comes forth from the stump of Jesse. And so this is the good news, that God has a way of bringing life out of death, and that's exactly what he promises to do in verse 1, that it seems as though there's nothing left. Israel's not faithful. How is the Lord going to bring blessing through an unfaithful people and he says it's through the judgment on the people, but then a shoot that will come forth. And this is part of the, the joy of the surprise of Christmas, isn't it? That, that it's all about surprise, not only our celebrations, but we read the Christmas story in the Bible, and it's all about surprise. Zechariah and Elizabeth were surprised. Zechariah was so surprised, he was struck mute by the angel. Mary was surprised. No doubt Joseph was surprised. The wise men were surprised. The shepherds were surprised. King Herod was surprised. All of them are taken by surprise. And the greatest surprise of all, perhaps, is just this. It's, it's the measure of God's grace that we see in a passage like this. The greatest surprise of all is that, that Jesus in glory becomes Jesus in a manger. That, that in this tumble-down stable in Bethlehem, God becomes man. This is part of what Paul is reflecting on in Romans 5 when he says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I hope if, if you kids got any presents at all from your parents this year, and I, I hope you did, I, I hope you opened them and they caused you to reflect on how much your parents love you. Uh, on the depth of their love for you, that, that they want you to have good things, that they desire good for you. And it's the same with Jesus. We, we see the Christmas gift of Christ to us, and that should cause us to reflect on just how much our Heavenly Father loves us, just how much He cares for us, how much He desires good for us. The, the goodness of the gift shows the extravagance of the love of God for His children. There's the joy that comes to us when we recognize that a shoot comes forth from the stump of Jesse. And moreover, in verse 1 in Isaiah, it says, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Not only is it uh, this little leaf, but now he says it, it becomes a branch and it bears fruit. This becomes, again, a fruitful tree. And so, so we were describing last week some of the idolatry, some of the evil of, of Isaiah's day and of, uh, that King Ahaz committed and, and we saw how much Isaiah suffered greatly, and all of the Israelites were suffering because there was no godliness. There was no holiness. There was no righteousness. And the spiritual climate of the land was just cold, and it was just dark. There was no fruit of godliness, no peaceful fruit of repentance. There was no joyful fruit of salvation, that, that in his day the lost weren't being saved, the, the, uh, the hurting were not being consoled and restored. The culture of that day, it was not marked by the fruit of the Spirit, it was marked by sinfulness. It was marked by uh, being a people of unclean lips. And Isaiah looks at the one who's to come and he says, he shall bear fruit. He shall bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And we see that, that what was true for Israel in Isaiah's day, isn't it just as true for us, that for us as, as individuals and as churches, as communities, if we are not looking to Jesus, there will be no fruit. That he is the vine, he is the, the fruitful one. If we don't first trust in Jesus and seek Jesus, then we don't experience the, the joy of fruitfulness. And, and so the question for us to ask is, what does it take for us in our lives, individually and, and together as, as the church? What does it take to see fruit being born? If that's our goal and our desire is to see just a massive amount of fruit come forth from our lives, what does it take? And this is what it takes to look to Jesus, the fruitful one. To look to Jesus, the branch who bears fruit. And as he says in John, to be connected. Because apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. And so for us to bear fruit means to be connected to Jesus. To confess our sins. To acknowledge our neediness. To put our trust in him and him alone. Jesus is the branch that comes forth from the stump and bears fruit. And so we see first in Isaiah 11 this joy of surprise that, that Jesus comes at all to a faithless people as a shoot from the stump. But then there's also not only the joy of the surprise, but there's the joy of, of savoring. And, and, you know, kids, I don't know how you guys eat your ice cream. I hope you do eat ice cream. It's delicious. I love ice cream. I recommend it. And I don't know how you eat it, but for me... You know, when I was a kid, we went on family vacations. One of our traditions was every afternoon we stopped and got ice cream. And my brother and my parents would always be done and ready to go get back in the car and go to the next thing. And I was always about halfway done with my ice cream cone, just, you know, one lick at a time, as slow as can be. And I wanted to savor my ice cream. 
I wanted to enjoy every last drop of sweetness and deliciousness that it had to offer. And so I, I really took my time with it. And, and I, I savored it as much as I could. And, and here's the reality. Is I, in my life, and perhaps in yours, isn't it all too easy to, to read our, our devotions, to have our prayer time, and, and to go so quickly and to check it off our to-do list and, and never to stop and savor Never to stop and, and savor the beauty of Jesus Christ revealed to us in his word. Never to stop and, and truly enjoy all of his holiness, his patience, his mercy, his compassion, his righteousness. How often do we, do we stop to really ponder the wonder of the gospel, to meditate on the perfections of Jesus? You know, like the way we would meditate on our favorite baseball team, or our favorite football team, to, to really think through all the statistics and compare and contrast and enjoy and study and memorize. And yet how often do we do this with Jesus? How often is our heart just so, just so taken with the beauty of our King to see him high and lifted up and to enjoy all that he is for us as our Savior? And so what we can do here in, in, in Isaiah 11, especially in verse 2, is to stop and to, to savor the goodness of Jesus Christ. We are surprised by him, but now we go back and we, we look at him from every angle, and, and this is what we see in verse 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. All four of the Gospels bear witness to this. They all mention his baptism where he goes into the water and is baptized by John, and as he comes up, the Spirit of the Lord comes down from heaven in the form of a dove. John's gospel adds that it remained upon him. That it remains. That whereas it came and went in the Old Testament, we read of it leaving people, John says the Spirit came and it remained upon him. And John will also tell us that God gave Jesus the Spirit without measure. That the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus, anointing him for his work, just to picture this in your mind, the second person of the Trinity walking around fully anointed with the presence of the third person of the Trinity and yet come to walk among us, come to live as a, as a human, to walk in, in our shoes. And, and this is why we read Luke chapter 4 as well today because we see that this is how Jesus explains himself to the people. This is how he announces his ministry when he goes into the synagogue and he opens to Isaiah, it's, it's chapter 61, and he reads this passage, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news. You see, that's what the Spirit does, is the Spirit comes, and, and in the Bible it will come on somebody to, uh, to empower them for a particular work. The Spirit always comes, not just sort of in a, a general purpose way, but to empower for a particular work. And oftentimes that work is the work of redeeming God's people or somehow saving them from something. So we read of Moses or Joshua, who, who had the Spirit of the Lord so that they could uh, lead his people out, so he could save them and deliver them. We read of it in the judges who delivered God's people, Saul and King David who had the Spirit to deliver God's people. But most fully and most thoroughly and most completely, the Spirit comes on Jesus to deliver God's people, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor the release of the captives, freedom for those who are oppressed. Jesus receives the Spirit to proclaim salvation. And here we have this description of what kind of spirit it is in Isaiah 11, chapter 2. He, he describes it saying it's the spirit of wisdom. 
and understanding. He had the spirit of wisdom, and so we know now that Jesus is completely trustworthy in all that he does, all that he says, and all that he teaches. For he has the Lord's spirit of wisdom upon him. He never lacks information. He never lacks any potential counsel that could be his that he would need. He never makes the wrong decision because he's perfectly wise. He's one who can tell the end from the beginning. John 3 testifies to Jesus and says, Jesus did not need man's testimony about what was in a man. He says he knew what was in a man. Perhaps the most mysterious puzzle to us is that puzzle of the human heart, and it says Jesus needed no testimony about that. He knew it completely. He knew it completely. It's the spirit of wisdom and understanding. And yet we read the very, some of the last verses of Deuteronomy. When Moses dies, it says Joshua takes over because he has the spirit of wisdom. He has a spirit of wisdom upon him, and that's why Joshua now is going to lead the people of the Lord, because that's what the spirit of wisdom is. It's not just sort of a, a Solomonic ability to undo riddles, to solve Sudokus, to be great at Scrabble. The, the spirit of wisdom is this. It's wisdom to lead the Lord's people into the promised land, to shepherd them, to deliver them from the wilderness and bring them into salvation. That's the spirit of wisdom. And that's what is on Jesus. He's a spirit of wisdom. He's also the spirit of counsel and of might. And when we picture this spirit of counsel, that's not just redundant. I picture that as, as sort of the, the war room. He has all of the information that is necessary to carry out his mission. The spirit of counsel and of might. Not only does he have perfect and complete factual knowledge, but he makes the perfect decision every time. He has the spirit of counsel. He never lacks the ability to carry out his plans. So not only does he have perfect wisdom to make plans, he has perfect might and ability to carry them through all the way to completion. We think of Jesus immediately after his baptism. He comes up out of the water. He's anointed with the spirit. And the first thing he does is the spirit drives him into the wilderness. And it's the spirit of might now to overcome the temptations of Satan. Satan will tempt him, but Jesus has the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might resting upon him. And all throughout his ministry. But oftentimes when we, when we think of his incarnation, we, we might not think of might, we think of humility. We think of, of walking among us in meekness, voluntary weakness, and yet how much more now do we see that humility when we recognize that all that time he's anointed with the spirit of might. And yet he makes himself nothing. We also read it's the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, I want us to see how similar those two things are. When we think of knowledge, don't we often think of a, a head full of facts and, and knowledge and, and this encyclopedic-like quality. But the proverb says it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. There is no knowledge, there is no true knowledge without the fear of the Lord. And so knowledge, really, it's not just a head full of facts, it's a head full of godliness. And that's the spirit that anoints Jesus, a, a, the spirit of the fear of the Lord, just like it repeats here in, in, in verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. His delight, that's worth thinking about, that his delight was in the fear of the Lord. At every point, Jesus always delighted to do that which pleased his heavenly Father. Not just did it, not just sort of begrudgingly in his obedience, but his delight was in the fear of the Lord. 
It's almost hard for us, for me anyways, to even think of what that is like, to, to have your delight be in the fear of the Lord, that Jesus was never motivated by greed. He was never motivated by selfish desires. He never acted out of guilt or fear. He was never mastered by any temptation, although he knew temptation. He never hurt the people he loved with his impulsiveness. He never had to repent for his stupidity. He delighted in the fear of the Lord. And this is what we see as we, as we savor who Jesus is and the spirit that was on him in his earthly life that, that we see Jesus who lived a life of perfect holiness, perfect godliness, delighting in the fear of the Lord. Not only did he do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but it was his delight to do so. We see Jesus living the life that we should have lived. We see that he lived a life of complete and total obedience to the Lord that we were supposed to live. And here's the almost unbelievable part of the gospel is that that God says, we look at Jesus and we see his holiness and his perfection in life. And he says, now that is the gift of grace to you. So that when God looks on you, he doesn't see you in your sin or in all your foibles or mistakes or shortcomings. But he sees one whose delight is is in the fear of the Lord. His delight is to do the will of the Lord because he takes the righteousness of Christ and credits it to us. And for all of our shortcomings, when we delight in all sorts of other things and sin against the Lord, he takes all of that and gives that to Jesus and puts it on his shoulders. And Jesus takes what we deserve, the punishment that was ours. It's the great exchange of the gospel. That we see a Jesus with the spirit of wisdom knowing full well our sin, knowing full well everything it would take to come and be our Savior, and he did it anyways. We see Jesus with the spirit of might, and yet for our sakes he became weak, born in a manger. We see Jesus with the spirit of the fear of the Lord, dying for sins once and for all. And so we're encouraged now to not only be surprised by Jesus, but to savor who he is for us in the gospel. But also then, we have the joy of dreaming. The joy of dreaming about Christ and and the rest of this passage, verses 3b through 9, are just descriptions of what it's going to be like on that great day. When Jesus is all in all. How he will rule the peace that we will experience, what the world will look like on that day. When Jesus is all in all, when he reigns over all things and everything submits to him. This is the end of this passage. This is the Christmas afternoon part of the passage when now we've, we've been surprised by Jesus and enjoyed who he is and now we just get to look forward by faith to that great day and to see what it will be like when he has conquered all his enemies and when he reigns in power in all of its fullness. And in a way, it, this is where we are historically, isn't it? Isaiah was still looking forward to that surprise when the Messiah would come. We look back on it. We've already done that. He's already been born. We can already look back and savor his life, savor the righteousness of his character, know the mercy that he lived with. We can do that. We look back on that. We taste. We see the Lord is good. And now this is where we are historically. Is All that's left for us is now we look forward. We look forward to the second coming of Christ when he shall be all in all and we dream, or to use the biblical word for it, we hope, we are strengthened in our faith as we look forward to this. We know the 
the benefits of salvation, but what we don't know yet is what it will be like on that day when Jesus is all in all. And Isaiah 11 here gives us just this glimpse of what we can expect. And, and here's what we can expect. Look at uh, verse 3, halfway through. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Aren't you looking forward to a day when the one who rules over all will be described as one who has righteousness as the belt of his waist? who's noted for his faithfulness, who's noted for his justice, who's noted for his meekness and his equity. That will be a great day when Jesus, in that sense, becomes all in all and rules over all people. And this is what Isaiah is saying. He's saying to those who live in a land of deep darkness, he's saying, this day is coming. This day is coming when Jesus will rule over all and he, he won't judge disputes by what his eyes see, but with perfect justice and equity. We've had a lot of talk in our country the last month and a half or so about injustice, inequity for the poor and for minorities and for those who are, are marginalized. And, and people have been outraged about that, and rightfully so, because that is injustice, and the Lord hates injustice. And, and what Isaiah says is it tells us, look with great hope and expectation to that day when Jesus comes and fixes all of the injustices. And when he rules, he rules with equity for the poor of the earth. The poor will receive justice. They will receive equity from Christ. He rules with total and complete justice in such a way that that those who are poor in spirit will be blessed, that those who mourn will be comforted, those who are meek will inherit the earth. And then verses 6 through 9 paints a picture for us of, of the world of peace that's going to exist under God's grace the world of peace that will exist when Jesus is king. And and the picture that we get in these last few verses is of the entire world being redeemed. An entire world now that delights and rejoices in the kingship of Jesus. And this picture that is painted in these last few verses, this is really what it is. It's a picture of the whole world has become now the Garden of Eden from Genesis 1 and 2. It's the whole world is now the, the paradise that God intended for the world to be. And and here it is, verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. And and verse 9 ends with with this simply, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Think of the the song that we're going to sing in a few minutes. We sing this, joy to the world. We don't just sing joy to the individual believer. We don't even just sing joy to the the church. We sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. We're looking forward to that day when his blessings will be over all the world. And and look specifically at verse 3 of this song. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So any last corner of the earth that has been affected 
by the curse of sin, where, where life is now broken and, and where there is sadness and where there is mourning. As far as the curse is found now, he says he comes to make his blessings flow, where he will redeem the entire creation from all that has been done to it by the destroying and destructive presence of sin. Every last nook and cranny of the earth redeemed and ruled by God's grace. That's why we sing joy. That's why we have joy and hope at Christmas time is that his grace will be over all. And that's, that's what Isaiah 11 does for us. Is it paints this picture for us to begin to whet our appetite for the day of Christ Jesus, to help us to see the beauty of our Savior, to help us learn to long for his appearing. This is what Christmas is for. Christmas is that time to, to re-engage our hearts with Christ, to tell again the story of his coming, to feel that joy of surprise, to re-engage with him and, and to, to savor, as Mary did, pondering these things up in our hearts, thinking on the glory of Christ, and hopefully also to reawaken our minds to dream and to hope, to have faith for that day of his appearing to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to long for him in his reign. Let's pray together. Father, we, we praise you and we bless your name for the shoot that has come forth from the stump of Jesse, for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you that you are faithful to your word. We thank you that not a single promise of yours has ever fallen flat, but everyone is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We thank you that although men will be unfaithful, Jesus Christ is always perfect in faithfulness. Although we live in a land that seems to our eyes to be filled even now with deep darkness, nevertheless on us a light has shined. That there is no more gloom for us, for Jesus Christ has come. And Father, Give us hearts that are, that are firm in our faith, that are joyful in our hope of looking forward to that great day when Jesus shall be all in all. And Father, preserve us, we pray, for that day. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.